Will we consume more and more technologies, or will those same revolutionary technologies consume us? Please join me on this episodic podcast journey that I'm hoping will help us make smarter choices on how technology will impact and arguably change our lives. As I promised in the last episode, let's bring this conversation back to technology. And to be more relevant to the circumstances we find ourselves in today, let's focus on what technologies we're actually using during these shelter-in-place and quarantine environments we're dealing with daily, and how some of the design decisions for how the internet works that were made in the 80s may be exposing security vulnerabilities for today's remote workforce. Since most non-essential businesses are closed or closing, a large percentage of workers are being asked to work from home if and when possible. So from a technology perspective, what does this really mean? Well, first, many people can't do their jobs from home. Many in the service industries like transportation or hotels or restaurants, to name a few, cannot. For the most part, it's only those individuals that mostly work with computer systems and or can conduct business via phone or phone conferencing technologies that are candidates from being able to work from home. And then working from home is only an option if your employer has issued you a mobile device of some sort, maybe a notebook or a laptop, or if the business applications you run are SaaS-based or otherwise in the cloud, or maybe if your business makes use of virtual desktops, which give you the ability to access your business desktops from anywhere on any device. Now add to the remote worker paradigm the fact that often in the same home are the remote students with basically all of the same needs as the remote worker, devices, accessible apps. Of course, the other critical piece workers and students alike need is a robust and secure internet connection. And therein lies the challenge or in terms of security, the vulnerability point. So let's spend a little time on network security in this episode and how the decisions of the past have created the circumstance of the present and what, if anything, we can do about network security in the future. I mentioned previously that I've been in technology for over 40 years now. and In that time, I've developed a few pet peeves about how we use technology A few things that absolutely make me crazy when I think about why they haven't changed and why we behave the way we behave in regard to those technologies. And for me, how we address security may be the most annoying subject matter of all. Allow me to explain. Now, if you don't work in or are not part of the technology workforce, please hang in there with me as I endeavor to explain a bit about how the internet works. I promise not to dive in too deep or get too techy on you, but it's important to understand how the internet was designed in order to appreciate the problems we have today. So, depending on whose account you'd like to reference, most would agree that the modern internet was developed somewhere around 1983 when the then state-of-the-art communication protocol called ARPANET adopted a routable protocol called TCP over IP, or Transmission Control Protocol over Internet Protocol. (laughs) Okay, that's a lot. I can almost see your eyes glazing over, but allow me to explain. 
This new routable protocol, and by routable I just mean the ability to determine what route to take to get from system A to system B. Anyway, it allowed many devices to connect to each other over communication networks that were already in place over much of planet Earth. It's obviously a bit more complicated than that, but again, I'm trying to stay high level here. The point I'd like to make is that the original intent of the internet, communicating with connected devices, was to allow computer systems to communicate for the original purpose of information sharing or moving data from one system to another and so on. The only requirement to get on the internet was that each device had to have a unique machine address called a MAC so that it could be assigned a unique and routable IP address. That's it. A unique MAC address and a routable IP address. The rest was handled by devices called routers which connected different networks and determined the best way to get from point A to point B. And the same is true today. For each device you have, your phone, your tablet, your laptop, your desktop, your servers, and any other device that is internet capable, they all have to have a unique MAC address assigned by the manufacturer of the device. And when you plug in or connect wirelessly, your device is, is assigned a routable IP address. And that's it. You're on the internet and able to visit websites or share information or do all the things that you do. So at a very high level, that's basically how the internet was originally designed to work. Through the 80s and 90s, internet adaption became more widespread as internet connections became more persistent. Fast forward to today and the same requirement exists to gain access to the internet. A unique MAC address and a routable IP address. But now we use the internet for many more things than information sharing and data access. The internet now reaches the far corners of the world and provides connectivity and communication that connects us all globally. These days, nearly all voice, data, video traffic, it all flows over the internet. And all of this happens mostly for the common good of all, but not always. Which brings us back to the topic of security. Just as in all walks of life, there are individuals and groups who thrive and profit on this vast network of information sharing and communication by gaining unauthorized access to private information that they then use to compromise other individuals or companies, or they create malware that cripples businesses, or they create ransomware that locks personal and business systems alike until ransom is paid. And well, I can go on and on, but you get my point, that the internet is kind of the Wild West. There are a lot of bad guys out there. And guess what? All the bad guys really need to wreak havoc on the internet or bring businesses to a halt or even compromise national security or power grids is a unique MAC address and a routable IP address. That's it. Same as it was in the 80s and 90s. With those two things, they're able to attack systems of all types across the globe. And, now this is the unfathomable part to me, they're able to do it for the most part with complete anonymity. It's difficult to know where the attack came from. Yeah, sometimes it's possible, but mostly very difficult to find out who the attacker was. Why? Because all they needed was a unique MAC address and a routable IP address. Now, our reaction to this threat is much the same as our reaction to threats have been over thousands of years in the battlefield. 
we build protective moats around our castles, or we line up a variety of defense mechanisms to thwart the attacks. But it's a lot more difficult with cyber attacks because we don't know who's doing the attacking, or even why they're attacking, or when they're attacking. And the weapons of choice seem to change by the minute. Still, they can do immeasurable damage to a great many of things, ostensibly to our way of life. And they can do it all, for the most part, with complete anonymity. So it shouldn't be a surprise to any of you that some people, when they're assured of anonymity, may behave differently than if their identity was known and they knew they can be held accountable for their actions. Anonymity often drives bad behavior. Think of the last time someone cut you off on a busy highway. As long as they don't have to come face to face with you, they really don't care what they do to you. Obviously, there are many other examples of bad behavior with anonymity in our society today, and I'm sure you can think of more than a few. But here's my point. I do not know or cannot think of anything else we can do in our global society that we can do with complete anonymity. We can't drive a car without registering the car, and we have to have a license to drive. We can't get a job without a social security number or a green card or some other proof of identification. We need a license to even fish and hunt. We need to register a gun. For so many things in our society, we have some type of registration and we have some kind of accountability, even, even if it seems far-reaching at times. But for access to the internet, where we can connect to other devices all over the world, and through which that anonymous connection opens the door to bad behaviors of all types and degrees, we need only a MAC address and a routable IP address. And so I say that something like 3.5 billion of the world population carry in their pockets the most powerful weapon the world has ever seen, their smartphone. From this smartphone, which, by the way, has a MAC address and a routable IP address, we can access systems worldwide for good, but also for very bad and evil purposes, all, for the most part, with complete anonymity. A very powerful weapon, indeed. Add to this, a whole new world of devices are beginning to make the scene. They're referred to as IoT devices, or Internet of Things. It's just another techie acronym for the billions, yes, billions with a B, of physical devices around the world that are now connected to the Internet, all collecting and sharing data, all without human intervention. Maybe a simple example of these devices might be smart home devices. You know, like light bulbs, receptacles, thermostats, doorbells, security cameras, and much more that allow you to control devices from your smartphone, or maybe even a simple voice command. Maybe a more sophisticated example might be a Tesla, with eight video cameras, 12 ultrasonic sensors, plus radar, all targeted at the future of the self-driving car. All of these devices are themselves, or through some intermediary hub or system, connected to the internet using, yep, you guessed it, a MAC address and a routable IP address. These billions of endpoint devices all provide access points for the bad guys with complete anonymity to infiltrate. Now, the Internet doesn't have to work like that. 
it does so because that's the way it was designed to work in 1983 when we all realized the great benefits of information sharing and other things. And maybe we were a bit naive regarding the possibilities of what bad behavior would drive. But it really is possible to change the internet to actually require the registration of all devices before being allowed on the internet. So why not register our devices so that when some sort of malicious behavior is propagated, we can at least track it back to the device or devices that are responsible and then to the individuals who registered the device. Now I realize there are counter arguments to internet device registration for sure. I certainly wouldn't want to create a DMV-like registration process for internet devices. That'd be a nightmare. But I'm sure there are ways to accomplish the same thing. Some would suggest that if we acquire device registration on the internet, the bad guys would just go further underground and build their own internet-like networks to carry out their deeds, and that would be even more difficult to discover them. I would argue the same is true of many of the criminal and terrorist organizations today, and law enforcement and military efforts are still successful in seeking them out. At least all of the other devices that would be legitimately registered would not be subject to the attack, or if they were, we would at least have a better way of identifying who was doing the attacking. Anyway, food for thought. Until the next time, please do take care of yourselves and be considerate of each other.